morning. My name is David Erickson. I'm one of the elders here at Christ Community Church. Uh, if, you were here, if you were here at first service, there was a big crew uh, that was heading off to Utah. Uh, a lot of youth, but it also included a lot of our pastoral staff, Pastor Rick, Pastor Tim, Pastor Jared, on the road heading up to, uh, 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 heading up to uh, uh, Utah. So um, did I say Pastor Jared? That's a blast from the past. Pastor Jordan. I've been here a while, I guess. So for the, anyway. Um, so anyway, so it falls to the elders to bring the word of God to you this morning. I'm happy to do it. So uh, today we're going to be in the book of Amos. So if you could turn there. Um, it's uh, in the Pew Bible. It's page 716. We're going to be taking a flyover through the entire book. I'm going to be hitting a, a few different passages. So you're going to get a lot more out of it if you're reading along. I do hope you're enjoying the series on uh, the Minor Prophets, the Book of the Twelve. In our uh, community group, we didn't meet this last week uh, to discuss Joel, but the week before, we met to discuss Hosea, and the first uh, half hour, 45 minutes, we just shared verses that we liked, that were just, you know, meaningful or just have impacted us, and it's just a really rich study. All right, so let's start right, we'll jump right in at verse 1, Amos chapter 1, verse 1, the words of Amos who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. So a few things we learned right away from the first verse. Uh, Usually you can date the books of the prophets by the kings that they mention. Uh, We have no idea when this earthquake was that happened, but uh, King Uzziah and uh, Jeroboam II uh, would date this at, in the early 8th century BC. So that means Amos is one of the first, if not the first, of the writing prophets. So before him came other prophets like Samuel or Elijah. And we have bits of what they said. But starting with Amos and then continuing for uh, 300 years, we have the writing prophets who give us, we have these beautiful books with uh, long, you know, extended sermons and uh, you know, long oracles that reveal much about who God is. Uh, a second thing we learn from Amos is that he was a shepherd. And in chapter 7, we, he goes on to explain he's a shepherd and a fig farmer. So he was blue-collar. Uh, and, but God loves to speak through the humble and the lowly, those who fear him, which means that they know him. And then a, a third thing we see is that um, uh, Amos is actually a bit of a missionary. So he's from the city of Tekoa, which is in Judah, but he's called across the border into the, northern tri- into the northern tribes, the kingdom of Israel. And uh, they had been divided for several centuries at this time with different uh, political systems, different religious practices, and their cultures had diverged as well. So what is Amos's message? I think it's summarized right away in verse 2. And he said, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn, and the top of Carmel withers. So our God is a God who roars. He's not a tame or a timid God. Uh, He's fierce, and he's actually intimidating. He roars and causes the shepherds around Amos, which was probably a manly bunch, to break down in tears. And his voice reaches to the heights of mountains, like Mount Carmel, and makes them wither. He roars through the prophetic word of judgment and coming destruction. Through Amos, God confronts his people's lack of justice and righteousness. They have the appearance of religious devotion, but it's just a self-centered religiosity. And they have an appearance of wealth. 
but they actually get their wealth by defrauding the poor. So it's not blessing from God, it's actually a curse. And God's going to send disaster on His people and bring all this false worship and unrighteous prosperity to an end. But we also hear the roar of God in a gracious offer of joy and satisfaction that's beyond what we know. The Israelites are pursuing pleasure by their own means, but God has something better in mind for them. So uh, Amos is nine chapters. For eight and a half chapters, it is a tough slog. It is a, a word of uh, harsh condemnation and lament, but the last half chapter is a description of divine joy that's really awe-inspiring. So with that introduction, um, it's time to go through the book. Uh, like I said, we're going to have to skim, so I picked four sections that I think represent the whole message of the book. Uh, we're going to spend uh, chapter 1 and 2. It's an indictment against the nations in Israel. Chapter 3, a portion of it, God brings disasters. Then we'll look in depth at three prophetic woes or cries of lament, and we're going to end with that last half chapter, future days of fruit and wine. So let's, uh, but let's ask the Lord's blessing uh, as we dive into his word. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you, we humbly ask you to speak to us through your word. We need your spirit to work so that we can understand. We know you're a God who speaks. We want to be a people who listen, who are able to listen. So we ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so the book begins with a series of indictments. Let's just keep going in chapter 1, verse 3. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. So I will send a fire upon the house of Hazael and it shall devour the strongholds of Ben-Hadad. I will break the gate bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitants from the valley of Avon and him who holds the scepter from Beth Eden and the people of Syria shall go into exile to Kir, says the Lord. So Damascus, what, uh, what Amos is referring to, Damascus was the capital city of the nation of Syria. And that would be kind of the, dark, the, the green up in the upper right. So it's to the northeast. And this was a, Syria was a traditional foe of Israel. So everyone in Israel hearing Amos' message would have just been, you know, fist pumping. This is great. Uh, Amos uses some contemporary idiom. Uh, he says, for three transgressions and for four, which probably means, you know, there's many transgressions. He's going to pick just one. The people of Damascus have threshed Gilead, which is the region just south uh, uh, of Syria. They've threshed them with threshing sledges of iron. They've oppressed the people like a field being plowed under. But God's not unaware, so he's going to send devastation on the house of Hazael, who's a king of Syria, and he's going to break apart the strongholds of Ben-Hadad, uh, who is uh, Hazael's son. And just like God threatened to send Israel into exile, he's going to send Syria into exile to the land of Kir, far away uh, in Mesopotamia. So we learn here that God is not just the God of Israel. He's the God of every nation. It doesn't matter who they're worshiping in Damascus. They owe their worship to the God of Israel, and because they've acted wickedly, God's going to hold them to account. So let's keep reading in verse 6. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they carried into exile a whole people to deliver them up to Edom. So let's stop there. The Gaza is a city of the Philistines, so this is in the southwest corner, so it's the nation in the red. 
And they had uh, uh, pressed some people, we don't know who, but God's going to hold them to account as well. Let's do a little bit of skimming here in verse 9. For three transgressions of Tyre, and for four I will not revoke the punishment. Tyre was a principal city of the Phoenician states in the upper left corner there. You see the brown, the Phoenician states. And then uh, verse 11, for three transgressions of Edom, and for four I will not revoke the punishment. So there's a curious pattern here. If you look at the, if you plot these out on, a, on the map, what you see is that the first four nations that Amos brings condemnation to form a perfect circle around the nation of Israel. All right, verse, chapter 1, verse 13. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of the Ammonites, and for four I will not revoke the punishment, because they have ripped open pregnant women in Gilead, so they might enlarge their border. Verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 1, for three transgressions of Moab, and for four I will not revoke the punishment. So, so far, all of these nations are foreign, godless nations, and they've been disobedient to the law of God that's written on their hearts. And Israel would have been just very glad to hear this condemnation coming. But now in chapter 2, verse 4, Amos directs his fire at Judah. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes, but their lies have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. So I will send a fire upon Judah, and it shall devour the strongholds of Jerusalem. Judah is condemned in the same way as the other nations, with the same formula. But the condemnation isn't for any general wickedness, but for the very specific violation of God's law, they had heard God's law, they knew it, and they rejected it. And just because they're God's people doesn't make them exempt from judgment, it, it's actually the opposite. They're held to a higher standard. So God's going to send a fire upon them and destroy his own holy city of Jerusalem. And at this point, if you keep working the map of Ammon, Moab, and Judah, I think all of the people in Israel listening to Amos's message have got to be getting nervous right now, right? Because they see it's actually zooming in on them like a bullseye focusing directly at Israel. And that brings us to chapter 2, verse 6. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. So the formula is the same, but the indictment against Israel is not exactly the same. It's actually more intense. Israel's guilty of pursuing material gain at any cost. They've, they'd enslave the righteous just to get money. They don't even mind a small gain, just getting a pair of sandals. They'll, uh, they'll do it at the expense of the needy. Verse 7, those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. A man and his girl, <clears throat> a man and his father go into the same girl <clears throat> so that my holy name is profaned. So Israel's guilty of sexual sin as well. A man and his son have sexual relations with the same girl, clearly a violation of Mosaic law. Verse 8, they lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge, and in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. So this actually, verse 8, continues the description of the sexual sin, which is actually part of their temple worship. The father and the son, they lie down, beside their many altars, altars to Yahweh and likely to foreign gods as well. 
And they do all this drunk on wine, uh, doing all this on clothes and with wine they've taken unjustly. So Amos is not, if you read this sec- these, these verses here, Amos is not giving a list of sins. He's describing a, a single sinful heart that shows itself in all these facets. The people are pursuing pleasure at the expense of the poor, and at the same time they're deceived into thinking that they're worshiping God. The prophet Jeremiah wrote, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? A self-deceived person is somebody who's telling lies to themselves, right? They're blind to their own blindness. How do you break through that? But God has a way to break through, and it's incredibly effective, and he's going to use it. But before he does that, he builds his case a little more. So let's keep reading in verse, chapter 2, verse 9. Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars, and who was as strong as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. Also, it was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and led you 40 years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. You can see how God has short words for the Gentile nations and long words for the people of Israel. Their guilt's compounded by the fact that God had delivered them. He'd brought them out of Egypt. He gave them the land. He'd been gracious to them. Let's skip to verse 13. Behold, I will press you down in your place as a cart full of sheaves presses down. Flight shall perish from the swift, and the strong shall not retain his strength, nor shall the mighty save his life. God's going to send punishment on the nation of Israel, just like the nations around them. He's going to give them over to their enemies, just like they had agreed to in the covenant as the consequence. And we know that this happened. Fifty years later, God gave the nation of Israel, the northern tribes, to the nation of Assyria. The imagery of verse 13 is that God's going to press them down like a cart full of grain that breaks apart under the weight it carries. So the grain is like their sin. It's just one little bit, the cart can hold it. But if you add more upon more, eventually it accumulates to the point where they colla- it collapses under the, the accumulated weight. Yet we also see that it's God who presses down on them through the consequences of their actions. So we see more of this in the next section. Gets us to chapter 3, starting at verse 1. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Of all the nations, all those nations around them, God knows and intimately cares only about one, only Israel. He chose them to be his people. He promised to be their God. And it doesn't exempt them from judgment. It actually, God actually says, I'm going to punish you because I know you. And isn't this exactly how it is with us? If I see someone else's child misbehaving around me, I might say something, but I might not, right? But if it's my own child misbehaving, I am going to say something because he's my child. I bring discipline because I care about him. So then Amos starts asking a series of rhetorical questions, and there's an- the answers would have, been ob- they would have been obvious to the reader of that day. Verse 3, do two walk together unless they have agreed to meet? The answer is no, they would have agreed. Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? You can imagine this, right? Uh, no. Does a young lion cry out from his den if he has taken nothing? Does a bird fall in a snare on the earth when there is no trap for it? 
does a snare spring up from the ground when it has taken nothing? Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? So in each case of these questions, it's hinting at some disaster, some dreadful consequence, but the driving force of it again and again is just the obvious no, which leads to the last question. Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? Is there any disaster that comes to a city or to our lives that doesn't come directly from the hand of the Lord? And in Amos's message, the answer, he drives us to it. The answer is no. Every tragic thing that happens in our lives, in the words of Amos, is done by God. It's not merely that God allows it or that he doesn't prevent it. Amos is saying he actually does it. This is what we mean when we say that God is sovereign. He directs everything that comes to pass, even the most tragic things in life, and he works them according to his plan for his glory and for our good. And if you've lived for any length of time, you've seen something go horribly wrong in your life. It's the the very opposite of what you were hoping for. And our natural inclination is to say, well, where is God? If If he was involved, this wouldn't have happened. But the Bible tells us the only way it could have happened is if God were involved. So we might object at this point and say, look, doesn't this make God the cause of evil? Or is he, uh, is he unfair or is he unjust? But consider the type of disaster God is about to bring. What he's going to do with Israel is he's simply going to remove his protective hand. All he's going to do is allow the human wickedness, which he's been graciously holding back, to have its natural consequence. And he's going to give the people of Israel what they want So God doesn't have to be the author of sin in order to be the author of disaster. We humans, we bring all the sin that's necessary. God simply picks it up and he works his good plan with it. I think our view of God's sovereignty has a lot to do with our view of what our problem is, how we view our problem. If I view my problem is that I'm not happy, if I'm not getting what I want, life isn't going my way, then a God who sends disaster and hardship, he's he's just cruel and uncaring. But if we see that our problem is that we're like these 8th century B.C. Israelites, that our hearts are bent toward greed and lust, and also that we're spiritually blind, and that we fool ourselves into thinking that we're actually worshiping God and deserving His favor. So if we're convinced that that's our problem, then we see any drastic measures that God takes is exactly what we want. It's like a doctor who prescribes chemotherapy for a cancer that's about to kill us. If you don't believe you have the cancer, then you don't see the need for the harsh treatment. But if you know and trust the doctor, then you're actually thankful for the hardship. I think we see God's love in the very next verse, chapter 3, verse 7. For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. The lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? So God graciously sends prophets telling us what he's going to do. God doesn't bring disaster in our life without revealing his intentions or his plan. He cares for us and he gives us his word. And Amos the prophet hears the roar of God and he's compelled to prophesy. So the question for us is, when we hear the roar of God in the prophetic word, are we compelled to read it and to believe it? So the rest of chapter 3 and chapter 4 has a series of examples about how God uses disaster in the lives of his people. Like in uh, uh, chapter 4, verse 6, I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places, yet you did not return from me. God actually 
deprived them of food so that they, to turn their hearts back to him. So when these horrible things happened, God wasn't absent. Uh, verse 10, I sent among you pestilence after the manner of Egypt, yet you did not return to me. God can decree the rise and fall of the stock market. He can decree the acceptance letter or the rejection letter of any college admission officer. Uh, he can decree the hiring and firing decision of any corporation. And he can take the heart of any president or any world leader, it doesn't matter what he says or what he thinks, he can direct it to accomplish his purposes. So when we see any of those things turn against us, do, what do, how do we interpret it? Do we see it as bad luck? Someone is, uh, do we blame others? Or do we see and trust the hand of God? And also, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't mean that there has to be some great sin in our life that God, where God is bringing judgment for. If you, we should all remember the story of Job. Job was a man that God called a righteous man. And yet, in the wisdom of God, he brought great hardship in his life and he used it to teach Job something about himself. And I think we see that here as this section concludes. Uh, chapter 4, verse 12 uh, Amos uh, wraps it up by saying, Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. So he's wrapping up this section of, of these consequences, but he ends with this doxology, verse 13. For behold, he who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what is his thought, who makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth, the Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. This is my, my favorite passage in Amos because I sense that the prophet almost like loses control of himself and just has to break out in praise. Uh, he has this expansive, all-consuming view of God and he's our God. We belong to him and he's revealed himself to us. So even if we don't understand exactly what God's doing with these circumstances, we know that he is the one doing it. We're in his hands. All right, that brings us to the third section of Amos, the three prophetic woes. We have to skip over chapter 5, even though uh, it's actually the uh, literary center of the book and it's a call to repentance. Like in verse 14, seek, chapter 5, 14, seek good and not evil that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you. But we're going to go to uh, 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 verse 18 in chapter 5 for these three woes, because I think these three woes do a good job of picturing the spiritual state of Israel. And God's word tells us we need to see ourselves at risk of being in a similar state. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. So let's look at the first woe. Chapter 5, verse 18, woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? So the people are looking forward to the day of the Lord. It's a common theme in the prophets, a day when God would intervene in the affairs of man uh, for judgment or for mercy and Israel is confident God is coming for judgment on all these other nations and they're incredibly confident that they are going to receive the blessing of God but it's going to turn out the opposite let's keep reading it is darkness and not light as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it so it's going to turn out to be exactly the opposite of what they expect. And God is sending Amos to warn them they can't hear it, right? They're spiritually blind. And when it comes, they won't be able to escape. Verse 21, I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. 
and the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. This is just, a, it's an incredibly harsh message. God, God was the one who actually uh, commanded them to keep the feasts, to, keep, uh, to offer these sacrifices, and they were doing it, but God says, I hate them. Just, it's just noise to me. Get, get rid of your worship. And the reason is that they're offered up by hearts that are greedy and selfish and lustful. So in verse 24, God says, this is what I want. He says, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. God delights in his people when they know and love him. So God is just, and so people that know him will love the things that he loves. They'll love justice. So the thought of getting a little more money, at the, especially at the expense of the poor, it's like it would be it would be unthinkable. It should have no appeal to us. And God loves righteousness. And so those who love God will love what he loves. The thought of a little sexual pleasure that goes against his good plans should be repulsive to us, have no attraction to us. So we have to be careful that we don't become like the Israelites. The warning is meant for us. Uh, it's, uh, here in the 21st century, it's easy for us to look at our church attendance. You can count the Bible studies you're in, or maybe last week, you know, you're signed up as an Adventure Week volunteer. These are all good things. But they're not the measure of our devotion to God. What really matters is whether we know and love Him. Let's look at the second woe. Let's skip to chapter 6, verse 1. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion and to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria, the notable men of the first of the nations to whom the house of Israel comes. So Samaria was the capital city of Israel. And Zion is a reference, it's the hill on which Jerusalem is built. They felt, the, the, the God's people felt no sense of threat, no unease about their spiritual state. Verse 2, pass over to Kelna and see, and from there go to Hamath the Great, then go down to Gath of the Philistines. So these are three cities uh, around Israel. Kelna was an Assyrian city far to the north, uh, north and east. Uh, Hamath was uh, Assyrian, so the first was Assyrian, the second is Assyrian city, immediately to the north, and Gath was part of the Philistines. And there must have been some disaster, something had gone, you know, something had gone wrong for these cities, they would have known about it. And Amos asks, are you better than these kingdoms, or is their territory greater than your territory? So is, you, Israel, are, you have the word of God, you have the prophets, you have the law, are you actually better than them? And the answer is no, they're not. They're in no better place. So the question we need to ask is, are we at ease in Zion? Do we feel content coming to church? We have a great church, right? Good doctrine. We have a great preacher. Lively worship. But are we numb to the state of our souls or to the state of the souls of those around us? I think if we get some wisdom from Amos, we realize there's a test we can apply, which is how do we react when God sends hardship in our life? Are we shocked and surprised when things go badly? Or do we humbly accept it as coming from his all good hands? All right, let's go to the third woe. Uh, chap uh, chapter 6, verse 4. Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall. So if none of the woes have hit you so far, this one has just got to hit, Right? Because we live in South Orange County. There's prosperity all around us. You know, near-perfect climate. We have all the food we want. Just a couple days ago, I was over at Via Roma. I could have ordered the lamb, 
The only reason I didn't is I got the seafood paella. It was like, it was fabulous. Like, we have all the food we want. We're actually, like, more abundance even than Israel. Verse 5, who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp and like David invent themselves instruments of music. God loves music. We can love music, but this is idle, these are idle songs, just, you know, living for the moment. Verse 6, who drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils. So they don't just have a drink or two, they drink it in the, by the bowl full. And they must like going to uh, like something like Bath and Body Works. My, okay, so, my, so what do we do with this, right? My wife likes Bath and Body Works, and I actually like to get her stuff from there. So we have all this prosperity. So how do we view it? What do we do? I think the key is right here. It's, it's just it's in the, at the end of verse 6. So let's just read it again. Who drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils, but are not grieved over the ruin of Israel, or the ruin of Joseph, which is a reference to Israel. So they're enjoying all this luxury, but they're blind to the ruin of Joseph and the destruction that it's causing the nation. So I think the question for us is, are we grieving over the sin in our lives and in the, the sin that's around us? Does sin cause us to regularly pray for God's intervention or for him to bring conviction? If we do, if we see the sin and it grieves us like it grieves God, then I think it, that's what, it will change how we view God's blessings. It's not going to be satisfying to lounge there on that bed of ivory, even if you've got it, because you'll, you'll want to direct your resources, whatever God's blessed you with, time and money, energy, to doing some good in the world, to build up the kingdom of God in anticipation of the Lord's return. But Israel just doesn't see it. Verse 7, Therefore they shall now be the first of those who go into exile, and the revelry of those who stretch themselves out shall pass away. God's not going to let the situation persist, so he's going to bring it to an end. They could have repented, they won't, so God's going to stop the indulgence and carry them off to Assyria. So this wraps up our third point, and we're going to get to the last section of the book. It's, uh, in, in chapter 7, there's a series of visions that take, go all the way to the end of the book. Some of the visions uh, talk about how God will uh, relent for a time, but then he, he cannot pass by anymore, uh, and he's going to bring judgment. And I think one of the judgments, I don't want to skip it, is chapter 8, verse 11, because it's just, it is, uh, in many ways, the most terrifying judgment. Chapter 8, verse 11. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst of water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. I don't think we, then it's just, we don't want to ever be this person where God simply stops sending him, sending us his word. That we, we've ignored it so many times that God just stops speaking to us. And then he just lets us go in our spiritual blindness and he sees us just wandering around, looking for meaning, looking for purpose, never finding it. Because when we did have it, when we had the word of God, we ignored it. All right, let's go to chat. Let's, uh, to close this off, let's go to chapter 9, verse 11, for the last section of the book. So just a couple of verses before this, chapter 9, verse 8, God says he's going to destroy the sinful, the sinful kingdom, but he's not going to utterly destroy it. So he's got a plan of restoration which is revealed now. Let's read it in uh, verse 11. In that day, 
I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. So a future day is coming when God's going to raise up what he's torn down. He's going to rebuild what he has broken. So if you could keep your fingers here in Amos and flip to Acts chapter 15. In your pew Bible, it is on page 869. So the prophet Amos is quoted twice in the New Testament, uh, once by Stephen in uh, his speech in Acts 7, a second time here in chapter 15. And the, the context is that Peter and then Paul and Barnabas had been preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. And the Gentiles were believing and coming into the church and the Holy Spirit had fallen on them. And the the Jewish Christians were wondering, what do we do with this? What, what is God doing? How do we understand the coming in of the Gentiles? And to understand it, the Apostle James turns to the book of Amos. So let's read it there. Ch- uh, Acts 15, verse 12. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. And here's the quote from Amos. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. So James and the early church, they understood that Amos' words were actually being fulfilled right in front of them. There's the reference right there, but we've already done it there. All right, they understood those words in Acts 15 were being fulfilled at that time. They saw the Gentiles coming in. They were seeking the Lord, and it would happen as a result of God returning and rebuilding the tent of David. And if you go back in Amos chapter 9 where it says, in that day I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen. So from Acts we learn that this day is the first coming of Christ. I think there's a few other passages in the New Testament that support this. I want to take a quick look at them. One is in Luke chapter 1. This is when Zechariah, who uh, is the father of John the Baptist, um, after John the Baptist is born, Zechariah realizes the significance of the coming Messiah and what's happening. And he says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. So the coming of Christ is God's visiting his people and raising up David's horn, rebuilding David's tent. We see it also in the sermons of Acts. I picked one from Acts chapter 3, which says, And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel... And those who came after him also proclaimed these days, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. So the prophets were talking about the coming of Christ, the inclusion of the Gentiles. People like you and me are now part of God's people And it's a sign that the promised day when God would rebuild the booth of David has already begun. And yet there's more to it than that. If you read the whole sermon of Acts chapter 3, 
There's an already and a not yet part of it. Uh, So God has raised up his servant. These are the days that the prophets spoke about, but there's still a time when Christ will return and uh, and restore all things. So the prophetic message is fulfilled in Christ. It's fulfilled in part now, and it will be fulfilled completely when he returns. And I think we see this here as Amos closes out in chapter 9, verse 13. Amos writes, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills will flow with it. The harvest is going to be so plentiful that the people reaping, they can't even keep up. So there's going to be no scarcity. All we know is scarcity, right? Like we have to make choices based on limited, limited resources. But God doesn't know any, he has no scarcity. He just has unlimited abundance. And today we experience the spiritual reality of this, right? Ephesians 1, we have every spiritual blessing in Christ. But someday we're going to experience the same unlimited abundance in every area of life. Even the wine is going to be abundant. It's described as the mountains dripping with it. So when I go out for dinner, actually, yeah, when I was at Via Roma, I had a glass of wine. Uh, I enjoy it. If I'm going to be there for a really long time, like a long evening, I might have two. But that, then I reach my capacity, right? That's all, that's all I can take. Uh, the indulgent, pleasure-seeking Israelites in chapter 6, they were drinking it by the bowlful. But God's capacity for pleasure is wine by the mountainful. He has a capacity that's beyond anything we know, and he is inviting us into that pleasure. Verse 14, I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I think this is the great contrast in the book of Amos. In the earlier chapters, we see Israel, they're pleasure-seeking, They're going after whatever, they're trampling on the poor in order to get just a little more pleasure in this world. And God says, I have something far better in store for you. He's wooing his people to set their sights on his pleasure, which is something deeper and richer and more satisfying than anything they can get themselves. Verse 15, I will plant them on their land and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. And this is our great hope, that we're going to live forever with God in a new heavens and a new earth. All the promises God made to Israel will be fulfilled in Christ. And we Gentiles who are graciously included, we, we get to share as well, we're grafted in. We're going to be planted in the land, never to be uprooted, enjoying the unlimited bounty of God's provision. I think this is the message of the book of Amos. All right, let's close in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, what an awesome word this is, this vision of satisfaction in you, of being planted in the land where you provide everything we could possibly want. Uh, Lord, I pray we would learn to desire you, and in contrast, the pleasures of this world that lure us with just just to scratch out whatever gain we can get, it, it just would lose all appeal to us as we set our sights on you, as we know you as a God who is just and righteous. We want to be your people. We want to believe your word. Uh, We see the sin in our lives, but we see that Christ has paid for it and is transforming us and is making us more like him. So it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. 
For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.cccLH.org.